Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. editions of the KJV. And this, this part, as I had mentioned before, is somewhat scary for someone like me because I come from this background where we, I mean, we are hardcore about the King James Bible. We, we you know, it is the perfect word of God. It's never been changed. And it turns out that's not 100% accurate. <laughs> it has had some changes, but uh, as we talked about last week, ultimately, none of those changes have done anything to destroy the text. Now, that's, that is miraculous. As, as we're going to see, and as we talked about last week, when the American uh, Bible Society did this review of all the, all the versions that, that had come out of the King James Bible. We're not talking about versions of English Bibles, versions of the King James Bible. Between the top six uh, uh, editions that had come out, they found that there were about 24,000 differences between them. And their end result, was the, the, their final conclusion was that none of those differences had changed or caused harm to the actual text. Which is, which is unbelievable. I mean, if you think about that, so people over time made 24,000 changes <clears throat> of different sorts to the King James Bible, and none of them were changes to the text itself. I mean, that is impossible to happen unless someone is preserving his word and that someone would be God. So, all right. So we, we are talking about the, 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 the additions of the King James Bible and, and changes that have been made over time. And so now we are in 1762 when Cambridge Press printed um, a third edition of the King James Bible. Yes, sir. 1762? Yeah. All right. So 1762, Cambridge Press printed their third edition. And, um, and refinements that took place here were very similar to those of 1638. Uh, spelling and punctuation were the main, the main changes that were made. Now, you got to remember, as, as we move along, spelling is becoming standardized. And... Uh, and the English and English grammar is is being formalized, you know. Whereas before, uh, actually, 
one of the things we're going to have to do with the Luganda Bible, uh, Michael and I were looking at the, the 1890 Luganda Bible the other day, and it has almost no punctuation. It's the, if you saw the, grammar, the grammatical layout of it, it's completely different from, from the Luganda you have today. All that has to, be, has to be dealt with when we go through the Bible and try to put it together. And so the 1611, some of the stipulations put on the translators is that it had to remain as close to the Bishop's Bible as possible. And so they were limited in their ability to change a lot of these things and, and to move forward with a lot of these things. And they get a lot of criticism for that. People talk about it as though these were dumb men that didn't know what they were doing. And as we saw, that wasn't the case. These were brilliant men who were somewhat handicapped by the rules given them. And so they were limited in the, in, in, in the number of changes that they could make. And, and they were limited. Be, it, that, those limitations ended up being as much of a good thing as they were a bad thing. You know, it kept the Bible under control. It didn't allow them to just run away with, with, with crazy ideas. So uh, the work done here is said to be done with great diligence and exactness. These are the three words that they, they used. Diligence, exactness, and then in the end, moderation. So, but this is not usually the case. This is why you have a new international version. And this is why you have a new King James version. And this is why you have the American Standard Version. And you have all these other Bibles that are wildly different from the King James Bible because none of it was done with diligence, exactness, or moderation. There was no moderation. They just changed what they wanted, and then they, then they advertised this new book as though it's better than the King James Bible. Well, these men were very careful. And actually, all, all the information that, I, that I've read, everyone really liked this 1762 version or, or edition of the King James Bible. This, this 1762 edition was probably the one everyone should have clung to and stuck to. And... Uh, I didn't put it in my notes because I kind of read about it a little bit later. But what ended up happening is when they, made the, when they make the materials to print something in this day, they literally have to carve it by hand. Oftentimes it's carved out of wood. And so when you look at those printouts that I gave you, I think Bombali had one or whoever. I mean, you all got to see them. Some of that may have been pieces of wood carved into the shape of a letter and then pressed into the, in, into the, the, the paper. And so once it's carved out by the, the printer who has the copyright, and in that day a copyright is basically a license, it's, it's permission from the king, you're the one that gets to do the printing, and that's it. So you may have the only existing, you or, or just a few other people, or very few people have the only existing materials available to be able to print. And then there, there was a fire that destroyed all the materials you would need to print this Bible. And, and so historically, it is believed the reason that this one faded out so quickly and didn't catch on is because of this fire. All the printing materials were destroyed. And then immediately after it, you know, around the same time in 1769, you had the, the, the Oxford uh, edition that came out right on its heels. The, the contemporary to this one, to the 1762, is the 1769 by Oxford Press, which is said to have taken more liberty 
than the work at Cambridge. Now, in 1769, that's when we get the spelling changes. You know, spirit, as in Holy Spirit, is spelled spirit sometimes, like we saw last week. Uh, we saw that change with uh, flyeth. It's changed to fleeth. So, and, and there's, there, there, there are more of those. There, there, I don't think I could say there are thousands of them. I don't even know if I could say there are hundreds of them. But, but there are these differences in the, in, the, in the spelling. And the Oxford edition, though it did, it, it is said to be a great step forward in the grammar. Grammatically, it, it made the grammar a lot more modern modern to 1769, but from 1611 to 1769, a lot happened with the English language in terms of of grammar. So by the time you get here, the King James Bible is considered to be modern. It's as modern as it can be without destroying or harming the text. All right, now they changed some spelling and some things like that that happened with the the Oxford edition. These are things that I don't particularly like, but Ultimately, it's still the same Bible at this point. There, there are some minor changes, but it's still essentially the same Bible. Um, both works are considered to have modernized the English Bible in a meaningful manner. And that's important, in a meaningful manner. What people want to do today is modernize the King James Bible in a manner that will not be meaningful. It'll be a different book. And you know that because every time they try it, they end up deleting verses You know, they don't make a few spelling changes like this. They don't change a few minor details. It's a completely different book by the time they're finished. You know, the the New King James is supposed to be, uh, is said to have been translated from the same documents the King James Bible was. And it's a completely different book. And we're going to talk about that today and tomorrow. We're going to go over those details. So it's not a one-for-one replacement. Now, you could pick up a 1769 edition, a 1762 edition, or a 1611 edition, and you have the same book in your hands with slightly different grammatical layout, meaning different punctuation, you know, commas in different places, apostrophes in different places, hyphens in different places. That, that's going to be the main differences, and then a few, a few spelling differences. And you might find some, some differences in the italicized words. And, and that's it. It's, otherwise, it's the exact same Bible. So if you have a King James Bible that has the text from 1611 to 1769, then you have the word of God in your hands. No harm has been done to it. Now, it's had more changes than King James Bible believers would like to admit. <laughs> and I hate to admit that, but historically, it's a fact. And, and this is one of those areas where even someone like me, what did I tell you at the beginning of class? You have, you have uh, uh, what are the three types of truth? Who remembers? You have absolute. And then you have objective. And then you have subjective. All right. Now, if, if I'm confronted with factual objective information that tells me there have been some meaningful changes to the King James Bible. I have a choice. I can choose to believe the objective truth, factual information, or I can say, I don't believe that's ever happened. I don't believe any of that. 
and I just left objective truth and went to subjective truth, I let my feelings for this book dominate the actual facts that exist, and I'm living a lie. And I don't want to do that. It's not intellectually honest. It's not true. It's just based on your feelings. Now, if you go to a, you go to a big Baptist church in America that loves the King James Bible, and you say, man, I love the 1611 King James Bible. It has never changed. Everybody will get excited and cheer and yell and shout, and, and you'll win the crowd. But you just lied to everybody. <laughs> and what happens is we get in this little bubble and we hang around with people who will only validate what we say and we never get challenged in any way so we can just keep up this lie, you know, for Jesus. <laughs> and that makes no sense whatsoever. You don't want to live a lie. You want to be able to be honest with people. Now, when I found this out through the course of my study, I wanted to, I wanted to see to what extent it was changed. And man, that this... This next bit of information, we're going to talk about the 1769 first, but this next bit of information had me shouting for joy because if I didn't have this, I would be really confused. <laughs> and, uh, and as part I already told you, we will, we will rehash it again. It's worth hearing over and over, but it's also worth hearing in the proper context. The Bible has had changes made to it. But the conclusion is that as long as you have one of these Bibles... The changes that were made did nothing to destroy or change the text, which is unbelievably miraculous and which further shows me that God is preserving his word, that when men sit down with the intention of changing the Bible, he says, you can add some commas and some, and some, and some periods and you can change the italicized words, which the King James translators put there, but you're not changing my words. And they didn't do that is unbelievable. All right, so 1769, Oxford University Press printed the KJV that was further refined. Oxford University Press began printing the Bible in 1675. That's when they began, that's when they got their license, their permission to to print the Bible. And uh, this was only given to a few people, and we'll talk about who that is in just a moment. Uh, it was said of this edition that there may never be any need to update the Bible further. So by the time we get here, the conclusion is, what else could you do? What else could you do to modernize this Bible? And, and even, even today in the English language. So by the time we get here, the English language is, is at its best. It's most clear. It's, it's most descriptive. Your ability to express yourself and explain things. And, and to have the terminology and to have the, the, the wording and have the vocabulary, all of it together, by the time you get to the 1700s, it's at its height. Not long after that, it begins to decline. <laughs> and so today, the English language is unbelievably stupid. It doesn't have, have to be, but we have generations of people who have been taught it's wrong to excel. And it's wrong to learn, and it's wrong to grow, and it's wrong to be strengthened. It's wrong to be built up. It's wrong to be intelligent. And so they've been taught to be dumb. And so with that, they dumb down the English language. And now the English language is, it, it can be used intelligently, 
there are still great writers today. And if you, if you read the great writers of today, the words they use are from the 17 and 1800s. When they express themselves in an, in an intelligent and intellectual manner, the way in which they do it, they go back to the 17 and 1800s. They, they often, many of them, are heavily influenced by writers from the 17 and 1800s. As if you use modern English today, it's, it's so... If you use it the way modern English speakers use it, it's so dumbed down that it's difficult to, to speak in an intelligent manner. And so we don't want to bring the Bible into that. We want to take Bible believers out of that and bring them into a more intelligent way. And by the way, the 1611 King James Bible was written in a fifth grade English vernacular. It was written so that someone in the fifth grade in 1611 could read that Bible with no trouble. That, that's the, that's the, the vernacular of English it's written in. It's written so simple that a, that a fifth grader in the English world could, could read it with no trouble. And today, college students can't read it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really sad. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that that's funny. It's, it's kind of scary that that's funny, but that's, that's the reality. Everyone is dumbed down. Now, now people make money off of teaching you again how to be diligent, how to work hard, how, how, to, how to build yourself up. Like it's become a lost, it's like it's a lost art and you, you, can, you can sell books on it and you can put videos on YouTube and make a lot of money and get a lot of views because people, everybody's trying to figure out how do I stop being so stupid and lazy? As I've been taught my entire life to be stupid and lazy and, th- and that that's acceptable. As long as I tried, it's okay. No, it's not. Effort gets you, I mean, it, it barely gets you anywhere. It just As long as you try your hardest, it's okay. Not if you have kids at home who are hungry. <laughs> like, you, you need to get out and you need to, you need to take care of business. You need to build yourself up. You need to be independent. You need to be self-sufficient. And if you belong to God, you have every tool available to you to do that. And if you're not going to do that, then you're going to be dumb, stupid, and lazy and useless. And that's a choice that you have. If you follow the course of this world, you're going to be taught that men can be women, women can be men, and, and everything in between, and that diligence is, is bigoted, and, and you shouldn't try so hard, you should just... Believe in yourself and sit at home and play video games. Well, and follow your heart. <laughs> would, you, would, you tell a, would you tell a serial killer to follow his heart? <laughs> what about Hitler? I think Hitler did follow his heart. And it didn't work out well for six million people who were, who were killed in his gas chambers. So, no, you, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Why would you tell somebody, just follow your heart? <laughs> There's a mass murderer over there. Why don't you go follow him? That's the equivalent to following your heart. <laughs> and so, no, we, we don't want to follow any of this world's teaching. We want to get in the Bible and find out what the Bible says. The Bible says if a man, if a man doesn't take care of his own family, he is an infidel and hath denied the faith. The Bible says if a man doesn't work, then he should not eat. So the the Bible approach to these things is very different from the world's approach. 
The world says, oh, you're not working? Well, let us give you what you need. God says, you're not working? Then don't eat. It's a very different viewpoint. That's why when people start teaching these things, the Christians who are more influenced by the world than they are the Bible look at us like we're crazy. I'm not crazy. You're following a bunch of weirdos. I'm following the Bible. And the Bible says if you're not going to work, you're going to be hungry. Or you should be hungry. And if you're not going to take care of your family, then you're an infidel. The Bible expects you, the biblical workday is six days a week, 12 hours a day at a minimum. That's, that's how the Bible defines work. So when somebody tells me, I just, I don't have the money, I don't have this, I don't have that. One of the first things I want to know is, are you working six days a week, 12 hours a day at least? Well, no, I'm not doing that. When am I going to watch football? <laughs> You're not. You're broke. You have no money and you have a family to feed. It's your responsibility to work. The Bible says there is profit in all labor. So if you're laboring, there will be profit. If you're not laboring, guess what's not going to be there? Profit. She's smart. She's very quick. But then once you get the profit, then there are biblical principles on how to manage and be good stewards of that profit. And so you gotta, you got to take all that into account. Well, the world we live in wants you to be dumbed down, stupid, lazy, and let the government provide for you what, you think, what, what they think you need. Now, if you're going to buy into that, that's up to you. If you're hoping the next president's going to save you, well, <laughs> let me know how that works out. <laughs> or you could say, you know, I have a God in heaven who will provide for me and will meet my needs if I will just do what he says. And he says to work. And so we work. It seemed that at this point, printing errors were at a minimum. Grammar and punctuation was at its best. And italicized words were concise and accurate. Margin notes and chapter headings were clear. So even though we had these these spelling issues that I don't like, as a whole, as, as a package... The Bible is absolutely at its best at this point, all the way around. And then Cambridge would do something, do something to, to make it slightly better a little bit later, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But, but at this point, when it comes to the italicized words, the grammar, the punctuation, the, the chapter headings, the layout, they changed the orthography, they, they made all these changes to the, to the Bible at this point, and, and when people hear that, they say, what? They changed the Bible. Not the words that God put in the Bible. That's important. All right? Everything else was changed and updated in a way that, that just made this Bible nigh unto perfect. I mean, at this point, it's as good as it's going to get in terms of its layout, its, its punctuation, everything I just named. It's at its best at this point. The Bible was printed with the assistance of Clarendon Press. And so we talked about that a little bit uh, last week. Clarendon Press. So if you buy a uh, Oxford Bible today, you can still buy a Clarendon version or edition or, or uh, I don't know what you'd call it. So it's uh, Clarendon and, and uh, the other one that they have at Oxford is Allen. They make, they make these Bibles 
And uh, they make this just a beautiful package of a Bible uh, styled a certain way with certain type of leather and sewn a certain way and, and the way that they bind it and all this. It's, it's become kind of an art form to these guys. And you can buy there, you can still buy an Allen or a Clarendon Bible today, which went all the way back to 1769, maybe even back to 1675. Uh, but at least the 1769 uh, edition, Clarendon Press helped them to print it. They noted the punctuation was carefully attended to. They verified again the italics to confirm their presence aided in making clear what God said in the original language. That's the whole point of the italics. All right. People say, and we've talked about it already, but it's again, it's, it's worth mentioning because you're going to you're going to run into it from time to time. You know, they say, I don't believe a single word of the italicized words in the King James Bible. Well, OK, well, that's your choice. But if you don't have the italicized word, so I just happen to have one open. Um, OK, look at look at Psalm 110. Psalm 110. And let's look at verse six. We're going to read this with no italicized words and see how it works. Verse 6, he shall judge among the, among the heathen. He shall fill with dead bodies. Well, fill what? You see the problem we have? So apparently in, in Hebrew, the, the two words, the places, were technically not there. But if you read this in Hebrew, you would, you would know, if you read and understood Hebrew, you would know he's filling the places with dead bodies. But when you take it from Hebrew into English, in order to make it make the same sense that it made in Hebrew, they have to add the places. Otherwise, it makes no sense. But there may not have been a direct word for word way for them to say that. So they have to add the places. But they were very honest about the fact that they had to do that. And they put it in italicized or, or parentheses or brackets, depending on which, which Bible it is, so that you know we've added these words. Because if we didn't add these words, you could read it in Hebrew and it would make perfect sense. But if you read it in English, the exact same, if, if they just did a word-for-word translation. Uh, you know, Michael's trying his best to teach me Luganda, and so you should pray for him. And... Um, Oftentimes, he'll have me try and write a sentence. And I try to write a sentence, word for word, translated the, the way I say it in English into Luganda. And you can't do that. It makes no sense. Because the Luganda sentence structure is not structured the same way it is in English. So it's going to require me leaving some words out in English and adding them in Luganda or, or using different words in Luganda in order to say the same thing I have to be able to put the sentence structure together in such a way so that what I'm saying in English also makes sense in Luganda to a Luganda speaker. And if I don't, you're going to know, man, that is some broken Luganda. (laughs) That like, I think I know what you're trying to say, but that that sentence makes no sense. And so if you don't don't give them the liberty to do this, then that's what we're going to have. What you'll have in the Bible is, he shall judge among the heathen, he shall fill with the dead bodies. Fill what? What's he filling with dead bodies? And so, if you don't have the places, this doesn't make any sense. There are a number of these that 
when you go through the Bible and you try to read it without the italicized words, all of a sudden your Bible makes no sense whatsoever. It's just broken English is all it is. And so unless you want a Bible in broken English, then the King James translators, who are linguistic geniuses, added to the Bible what needed to be there in order for you to, to make sense of it. Now, again, this is, you have to put this in its proper context. They did not add to the Bible or take away from the Bible in the way that God said, don't add to my word and take away from my word. This is not the same situation. These men are translating from one language to another, and in order to say perfectly what God said in this language and put it in this language, they have to give you the extra context or it makes no sense. So when you read this in, 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 in Psalm 110 verse 6, what they have put here is not something they just thought would sound good, so they decided to add it. It's in the Hebrew text. The question is, how am I going to get it from Hebrew to English and, and make it make sense? And so they, they went through the trouble to do that. And praise the Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm glad they did. Otherwise, we'd have, you know, in America, and it's in any language, not, not just in America, but in America, you know, foreigners come to visit and, uh, and people learn English all over the world. So they come with a little bit of English they know. <laughs> and they try to talk to you. And you're like, what are you saying? <laughs> it's English, but I, you're not. You put words together, but I, I have no idea what you're saying to me. And it's because in their head, they're thinking in one language. But they're trying to speak English, which they don't know that well. And they're trying to ask you something. And, and they don't know how to formulate the sentence properly so that it makes sense. They're using all the, maybe the right words, but they're, they're rearranged and they're, and they're, and they're, you know, they're backwards and, and they're just not in a sentence structure that we are used to in the English language. And so I have to, we have to like, let, have to ask them to say it 10 times and then, oh, I, now I know what you're saying. Okay. Well, you don't want that in your Bible. Why would you leave your Bible like that? Especially when you have a group of men who are capable of properly putting it together in such a way that it, that it causes no harm to the text. All right, does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. But for, for me and for my crowd, we don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that somebody puts something in the Bible. But it's a reality of translation work. You have to do it. And they did it in such a way that they were so careful that it caused no harm to the Word of God. I'm okay with that. I have no problem with that. You, you left my Bible as, as it should be, and you only added what was necessary. And then over time, as men reviewed the italicized words, they said, you know, we can make this more clear. We can make this more concise. And they, and they made edits to the italicized words, not to the actual text of the, of, of the Bible. That's important to me. Don't touch my Bible. <laughs> Leave it alone. It's fine the way it is now. All right, so um, great consideration was given to the chapters and chapter prefixes. The etymology of untranslated names was reviewed and translated where possible. If you remember, what was one of the rules regarding the names? Anybody remember? They were to leave it the, the way it is in, in the, um, the bishop's Bible. Unless they could prove that it just it had to change. If it was good enough, they were to leave it. 
But if it was completely wrong, you could, you could change it as long as you could prove that it needed to be changed. Well, in this edition, they went through and they updated all those names and, and made sense of them. <clears throat> Where the King James translators didn't have the liberty to do that. They were under the rules of the king and that was it. So, uh, marginal references were examined and updated. The format of previous printings proved to cause problems with alignment. This edition took care to think through the best printed format. So they would, you know, think about how they want to lay it out. And then when it's time to print it into the paper, it didn't quite work out the way you thought it was. It's kind of like when (laughs) most of you don't really use computers, do you? Um, Sometimes you're using your computer and you're trying to type something in a certain format on a Word document. And then when you go to uh, to to uh, make it a PDF, and you look at the PDF, and you're like, what happened? <laughs> when I went from the Word document to the PDF, everything got out of order, and, and it's all completely out of whack, and it's, it makes no sense now. Well, imagine, I can just go back to the document and change the format on a computer. They got to go change the entire carving. <laughs> they carved the whole thing out, and they're printing it, and they're like, oh, that didn't work out well. It, it didn't quite do what I thought it was going to do. Well, you can't just go back to a computer and, and change the format and, and, then, and then remake the PDF in, in 10 minutes. You're talking about weeks or months of recarving everything so that it can be redone. Well, here they, tried, they, they looked at the format of what previous editions had done, and they tried to think through what, what's going to be the best format to lay the Bible out in so that it makes sense. So they, they put some extra work into that. Uh, apostrophes were added to indicate possessive forms, and we talked about that previously as well. This was, this was considered the great modernization project of the Bible. This edit was seen as a great blend between original text and modern English. So from 1611 to 1769, they were able to put it together in such a way at this point that the Bible is as modern as it can be without you causing harm to it without you damaging what God wanted to say in his word. At this point, and and that's why it never fails, every Bible that makes any changes, once you get your hands on it, it no longer makes any sense. Most of that, I think, is the heart of the people doing it. I've yet to see someone who, who, who loved this Bible really want to make changes to it. I haven't, I haven't found a single Christian who loves the King James Bible who says, I think we could make it a little bit better. <laughs> None of them. It's always people who have problems with the King James Bible. They have the arrogance to say, we can outdo the King James translators and the people who did the work on this Bible. And they can keep whatever they come up with. I'm not interested. The two seamlessly integrated without doing any damage to what God said. That is unbelievably important. And it can't be stressed enough. When, they, when they, they, they took the old text and they modernized it and they did nothing to what God said. That, that, is, that is just further evidence that God is preserving his word. <clears throat> to me, that, that, that boggles my mind that, that, could even, that that's even possible. This edition became the standard due to its orthography, grammar, and punctuation. So almost all Bibles from, that, from 1769 forward has taken this this layout and this idea from the 1769 Bible, and they're all pretty much... 
Every Bible you have today that, that is true to the King James text is going to be some mixture of Bibles from 1611 to 1769. That, that's all of them are going to be some admixture in, in that way. Every time. As we saw the other night. <laughs> Everyone had bits and pieces of the 1769 to 1762 or all the way back to the 1611. And, I, and that's okay. If you have a Bible from 1611 to 1769, then, then you're okay. You have, you have the King James Bible in your hands. And I am confident in that, and I have, I have no issues with that. Uh, and of course, orthography. Who knows what orthography is? I know Michael knows. He can't answer. Somebody else. Orthography is a set of conventions... For writing a language, including norms of spelling, hyphenation, capitalization, word breaks, emphasis, and punctuation. So essentially, it's the layout of your, your sentence structure and, and, and your, your, your grammar and punctuation. That, that's the type of orthography that you're using. And so that's going to vary from 1611 all the way to 1769. This edition, just like all editions with primitive modes of printing, corrected previous typographical errors, but also introduced new ones. <laughs> Every time they tried to get rid of printing errors, they usually got rid of the printing errors from the previous edition, and then they added their own. <laughs> so you just got a whole new set of printing errors. Now, at, at some point, uh, all printing errors were completely gone, but not quite yet. Now, this edition kept it to a minimum. It, it, was, it was definitely getting better. It just wasn't quite perfect yet. From the late 1700s on, men were no longer interested in seeing any further editing to the King James Bible. So by the time we get here, people are tired of this. And they want to know, why, why are you continuing to make changes or, or edit or update or upgrade Whatever it is you call yourself doing, we're done. No more. And, and this is kind of when uh, King James onlyism started to become a thing, and, and people just got jealous over their Bible. Don't make changes to my Bible. It's fine the way it is. And by the time you get to 1762 and 1769, it really was. It was, it was really good. So we don't need to do anything else to the Bible. Why are you talking to me about making changes to an English Bible? That ship has sailed. In fact, it's probably landed already wherever it was going. You don't need to do anything else to the King James Bible. You don't need another English Bible. Nobody in this world needs a different English Bible other than the King James Bible. So when someone says, you know, we, we need a, a version that's easier to read. Well, we're going to talk about that. Because all these easier-to-read versions are not easier to read. In fact, every modern version is, is written in an in English vernacular that is much higher than a fifth-grade level. As they're examined and they're reviewed, none of them reach the level of a fifth-grader. They're all higher in, in different forms. So, so, no, so that's not true. And not only are they, are they higher, the words they chose oftentimes... Are just ridiculous. We're, we're going to look at a few. We'll look at a few examples. Um, probably, we'll probably get to that tomorrow. But 
Um, so at this point, the 1762 and 1769 were seen as final, and few men were willing to see any further refinements made. By the time we got here, between these two Bibles, people were like, we're done. I don't want to see, I don't want to see any more changes. I don't want to hear about any more changes. I don't want you asking me about any more changes. I don't want to hear you talking about making changes. It's done. The Bible is, is perfect at this point. We don't, want, we don't want to see anything else done to it. All right, so in the 18th century, three agents were authorized by the crown to print the King James Bible. And that was Oxford, Cambridge, and the king's personal printer. So those are the only three agencies that were permitted to print the Bible uh, by, by the 1700s. So if you were going to get a Bible, it had to come from one of those three. Now we get to 1831. And now we're going to move over to America. The American Bible... Society. So at this point, America has kicked England out (laughs) and become an independent country. We are now the United States of America. And in England, only these three people could print the Bible. Because in order to print, you had to have permission from the king. It was required. There There was no discussion about that. You had to have permission from the king. Well, not in America. When, when we established our new country, we had a constitution. And that constitution guaranteed freedom of press and speech. So we don't, we don't care what the king says. We, we, we will print what we want. And they wanted to print the Bible. And praise the Lord for it. Um, A man named Thomas Curtis began to complain that the continued typographical errors in in the printing of the Bible was disgraceful. Now, Thomas Curtis is back in England. So so we're going to kind of talk about some parallel issues here. Uh, A little bit about what's going on in England and at the same time what's going on in America. All right. So... Thomas Curtis began writing letters and complaining about what's happening with the Bible. He said, you know, you can print other other documents and have no errors. Why can't you get it together with the Bible? And he began to just tear into the, these groups. And he, he said, you've, you've got this monopoly on printing and you won't do it right. It's a disgrace. And he wanted to see something done about it. Um, a collection of his correspondence with those authorized to print the Bible were assembled into a book. And the book is called The Existing Monopoly and and Inadequate Protection of the Authorized Version of Scripture. (laughs) He said, you guys got a monopoly and you're, you're not protecting the Word of God. You're just flippant about it. You know, you're, you're, you let it go out with all these errors. You're not taking your time and doing it right. And he began to really give people a hard time. 
And apparently he was in a position to be able to do so. He was also upset about the careless nature of printing efforts, and he wanted these matters addressed in a formal and careful way. He was concerned about the monopoly on printing by the authorized printers. And that's a, that's a, that's a freedom issue, which England didn't have at the time. Even now, Eng- England is, it's odd the way England operates in terms of freedom. America has a, a written document we call a constitution, right? And so our expectation is it used to be the law. Now it's, now it's a fleeting expectation that you're going to operate according to that document, all right? So that document guarantees my individual rights as a republic. This is the difference between a democracy and a republic. A republic guarantees your individual rights. Nobody can take them away. But a democracy is, is like organized mob rule. If you can get a big enough group of people together, they can vote away your rights. Well, you get a big group of people together, together in America and want to vote away my right uh, to, ha- to, to, to free speech, a judge is going to say, the Constitution guarantees his free speech. Go somewhere else. You don't have to listen to what he's saying. <laughs> I can't, you can't take away his freedom of speech. If I take away his individual freedom of speech, I have to take away everybody's speech in that manner. You can't, I, you can't single out people and take away their constitutional rights. It either has to be everybody, and it's got to be done in a constitutional manner, or nobody. And we, in our town where we live, we've had... Um, Multiple times, our city council, our local government, uh, because of our street preaching, certain people in the town who hate it have gone to the city council and the mayor, and they asked them to remove us off the streets, to make it a law that we can't be on the streets. And praise the Lord, it's happened three times, and every time the mayor has said, they have a constitutional right to be there. You're asking me to do something I can't do. I'm not taking them off the street. If I take them off the street, I have to take you off the street. Like, you, you don't get to just say, take that church off the street. Don't let them preach. Don't let them hold up signs. No, all of you have to go off the street if, if, if that's going to be the case. And so, praise the Lord, every single time they have ruled in our favor. But they have to because we have a constitution that guarantees our right to be out there and to do that. Well, in England, they don't have a written constitution. It's just kind of a like a verbal agreement. I don't know. I don't. I, I'm not familiar enough about it to speak intelligently on it. But it's it's very different from what we have. And and even in England, if you want to go uh, street preaching and to do certain things like that, they have designated areas where you have to go do that. You don't have the freedom to just go out and do it where you want. It's 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 very odd. And this is why we kick them out. Um, it's it just it's just. And it's amazing to me that, and this is the other thing, this is the other thing about governments, okay? Now, I, I thank God we have the freedoms we have in America. It's wonderful. It's a good thing. But all this was accomplished up till now uh, under the strict dictates of a king who could do what he wants and told you what you could and couldn't do. And still, they could live like Christians, and they could, they could create a Bible, and they could, they could get all this accomplished under a dominant ruler with little to no freedom. So it kind of takes away, you can't use, for the most part, you can't use your government as an excuse. I mean, you've got to serve God. You've got to do what God says. 
And so Thomas Curtis is throwing a fit, and he wants something done about it. And uh, he also complained that modern Bibles had departed from the authorized version. Now, you got to remember, modern is 1831 at this point. And he's like, I'm, we're seeing now that you've made so many changes up to 1831. Now, remember, the editions we've talked about, I've only talked about the major editions. In between, other changes were made that, that people either uh, thought were, were good or they thought, we're not using that. Why'd you do that? <laughs> Why'd, you do that? Why'd you make those changes to the, to the Bible? We're not, we're not using that Bible. And they died out quickly and they went right back to one of those main editions. So the editions that I've talked to you about so far up to 1769 are the main ones that people were, were receptive to, that God's people said, okay. We're okay so far. <laughs> Just be careful. Don't, don't change my Bible, but we're okay so far. And then by the time we get to 1769 and to the 1800s, people are like, we're done with this. We're happy. 1762, 1769, we're happy. Don't, don't change the Bible anymore. I don't, I don't want to hear any more modernization, no more spelling changes. Just leave it as it is. Uh, they were okay if you went back. Towards the 1611, they were not okay with you moving forward into to, you know, more modern English or other changes. That, that never became acceptable. Even the translators were not authorized to make revisions to the work they had accomplished. But suddenly men from all over are making changes they deem necessary to God's word. So those translators had rules to follow. And those rules limited their ability to do some of the things that were done by 1769. They couldn't make those changes because they had rules to keep. The king would have, the king would have done whatever he wanted if you, if you violated those rules. Who knows what he would have done? And uh, he's the king. He can do that. And so, so Thomas Curtis is saying the translators couldn't make these changes. Why are you guys making these changes? Now, I appreciate Thomas Curtis and what he's doing. But I'm glad our Bible is not exactly the same as the 1611 Bible. <laughs> now, if it was all we had, I'd use it. I, you know, I, I don't care. I'd figure it out. I'd, I'd do what I tell. I would have to do what I tell everybody else to do. You need to learn how to read the English language. If you're an English speaking person and you're struggling to read the English Bible, then learn English. You're supposed to know it. You were born in America. You were born in England. You were born in an English-speaking country. Why are you struggling with something written at a fifth-grade level? That's not a problem with the Bible. That's a problem with you. And you need to step up and, 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 and gain some intelligence and learn and, and be able to read. And so, uh, but, but at the same time, I'm, if all I had was that 1611 version with, where my S's were F's, and, and my V's were U's, I'd figure it out. I'd learn how to read it. But we have something in between that is actually very easy to read and enjoyable to read. Some of the most beautiful writing that anybody's ever seen. And so, uh, but Thomas Curtis is throwing a fit and he wants it fixed. So Thomas Curtis complained to Oxford and Cambridge and they were willing to review the problem. This is what was interesting. They, they began getting his correspondence, and they, Oxford and Cambridge began talking together, saying, yeah, maybe we should, maybe we should think about this. Uh, we're just kind of 
we're excited every time the, this, this new linguistic scholar gives us a new edition of the Bible. But is that really a good thing? <laughs> Do we want this to go too far before we start causing harm and causing damage to the word of God? And, and so they began talking together and they worked with Curtis so closely that eventually they shut Thomas Curtis out of the conversation and worked together to create, a more, to create more uniformity. Now, he was OK with that as long as they were going to do it. And he kind of watched from the outside and he still corresponded with them. But they at some point, for some reason, they kind of pushed him out of that conversation and they just began working together to try to create a, a, a uniform text to the King James Bible. So you didn't get a, you know, 1611 version or a or, or a 1611 edition or a 1630 edition or a 1762 edition and a 1769 edition. And they've all got different grammar and different punctuation and different italicized words. That's a problem. And that's one of the things we ridicule modern churches for. I was in a church one time that I never should have been in. I didn't know it was this type of church or I wouldn't have been there. And the man who calls himself a pastor, he's not a pastor, he's a, a life, he's a, he's, a, he's a weak, effeminate life coach. And he immediately noticed <laughs> I didn't belong there. And it was a very uncomfortable situation, especially for my wife, because I wasn't going to cause problems because I went there. They invited me and I went. I didn't do homework ahead of time to find out if this is a church I should be in or not. And then by the time we get there, I realize, oh, no, <laughs> we should not be here. This is not a church that we are comfortable with. They wouldn't be comfortable with us. It just we shouldn't be here. And so the pastor immediately noticed that and kept looking at me and kept asking me questions. He kept complaining about my tie. <laughs> this man, he said, he said I, I think I think ties are a spawn of the devil. Really? A tie? I can think of a lot of things I think are the spawn of the devil that are so evil that they must have come from Satan himself. A tie is not on the list. And so I wore a tie. I don't care what we were doing. I wanted to wear two ties if I could, if it didn't look so ridiculous. And so it just it was a really awkward situation. But when he gets he stands on his stage, not not in the pulpit. It's a stage with light shows. It's a contemporary, garbage, weak, ridiculous church that's doing nothing. And, 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 and I'll tell you, I have, I have proof that they're, not doing, they're doing nothing. I'll, I'll tell you in just a second after I tell you what he said. So it's time, for the first time, the whole time we've been there, he wants to open the Bible. And so he tells his congregation, open your copy of the Word of God. Your copy? What does that even mean? Like, you've got your own Bible? But no, what he means is, we, we don't judge according, we don't, we don't have a standard here that we want to go by. So whatever copy of the Word of God you want to use, you, you bring it in, you use it. We're all inclusive here. We're just, we're so loving. No, you're weird. You're weird, you're weak, you're effeminate. And this was a historical church. This was a historical independent Baptist church. Uh, one of my favorite preachers from, from the 60s and 70s is a man named Lester Roloff. If you ever listen to my podcast and you hear the man reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that's Lester Roloff. Um, he, he's a, he's a, he was a great preacher. He was, he was an incredible man. He was interesting in some ways, but he, he was a blessing. And uh, he used to preach there. In fact, the, the previous preacher was still there 
And he took me and my wife out to dinner one night and told us a story about how Lester Roloff used to come preach and he would stay at his house. He would always go pick Lester Roloff up and, and he said, Lester Roloff had free reign of our house. So we, we had, uh, according to this guy, he said, we, we bought a TV. Now, if you knew Lester Roloff and you heard me mention his name and television together, you would immediately know this is not going to go well. As Lester Roloff preached hard against television. He said, he said, if you've got a TV in your house, basically what you've done is you've hooked a sewage pipe up to your house and you're letting it pump sewage into your living room. That's what he taught about television. He said, it's like, it's like you turn rattlesnakes loose in your living room. And you're just trying to sit down and relax together. Why would you do that? And so he, he preached hard against television, but he preached even harder against preachers having television. He said, if you're a preacher, you have no business having a television in your house. You have no excuse. You have no business having it. And, and he, was, he was really hard on him. So this man bought a, he, he's the pastor of this church. He's having Lester Roloff come preach. And he's, a, he's bought a television. <laughs> and so they took the TV and they hid it in a room and covered it with a blanket. <laughs> so Lester Roloff wouldn't see it. Well, he said Lester Roloff has free reign of their house. Lester Roloff found the television. <laughs> And from the pulpit at his church, he blessed the preacher for having this television in his house. That's the kind of man Lester Roloff was. He was hardcore. He was a blessing. And so one of my favorite sermons by him were that actually on my podcast, the excerpt of him reading the Bible in 1 Corinthians 1 is from that sermon. It's called Some Things Every Preacher Should Know. And man, it is. Or Some Things Every Preacher Should Hear. Something like that. I've probably listened to it 10,000 times. It's, it's incredible. It's, it's a wonderful sermon. He, he was an incredible preacher. And so, you know, he's, that man is still there. He picked the man who's now the pastor of the church. This used to be a historical independent Baptist church. It was a big, everybody knew this church back in the day. And so we're, my wife and I are there for a missions conference and, uh, and, you know, the conference is coming to the end. You know, all the music is contemporary. You got a guy with skinny jeans and a guitar standing up there with his little microphone on the side of his mouth. And he's, you know, singing and breathing heavy in the microphone. It's like, you're so gay. It's so weird. What is wrong with you? And I'm standing there like this the whole time. Like, I'm not, I am not singing this. I'm not participating in this. I just want to go home. I shouldn't have come here. This is ridiculous. And, and so my pastor taught me, you went there, you don't get to cause problems. You, you, don't, you don't get to go into somebody else's church where they've gathered together around a certain doctrine, a certain type of teaching, and cause problems there. That's up to them. I don't have to be there. I should leave if I don't like it. And unfortunately, we lived in Florida. We were all the way in Texas, and we didn't leave till. Sunday or Monday, so we were there for the week. It was, uh, it was a rough time. And uh, so th- during the whole week, they're printing John and Roman's booklets that they want to send to Mexico. Now, th- if you ever get the idea that you want to go contemporary, this is, this is what you're going to get. This is what you will produce. And this is what he produced in this church. So all week as a church during, during the, 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 the conference, this, if you want to, no, he didn't call it a conference. I shouldn't even say what he called it because then people listening to this might know who I'm talking about and I, I, I don't want to embarrass him. So 
so he, he didn't call it a missions conference. He called it something else, and it, it, was, it was ridiculous. And so we get to the end of their conference, and they've been making John and Roman's booklets all week long, and they're all excited. And so what they did was, on his stage, because again, he doesn't have a pulpit, they stacked the boxes of John and Roman's in front of the, st- the stage. And so his last pep talk, because it wasn't a sermon, he wasn't preaching, it was, it was just so wonderful, and, and we've made these John and Romans, and he said, uh, our, our, uh, our fingerprints are on these books. A piece of us is going to Mexico. I was like, that's weird. Why would you say that? That's, I don't know what you thought that was going to do for everybody, but this is supposed to be the last you know, pep talk, and everybody's going to get all excited. And he said, now together as a church, we're going to load these boxes on that truck, and they're going to take it to Mexico on our behalf. Wow. So the sermon was over. Everybody left. Nobody stayed to help load the boxes. So there's like two guys, both are on staff, and they're, they're loading the boxes, and one has a microphone. He's like, well, if... if you know, don't leave yet. If, if you could just come help load these boxes, we could get them loaded. And, and they're just walking out the door. They don't care. Because you created entertainment. You did not teach anybody the word of God. You created an all-inclusive, we just love everybody form of entertainment. And so they came to be entertained. They saw the show. And now they're leaving. They didn't come to do any work. They didn't come to serve God. That's why when Pastor Paul says, we have work day, who's going to show up? People who love God. When he says, we're going street preaching on Friday, well, who's going to be there? People who love God. When he says, we're going out Sunday evening to go, to go preach the gospel, well, who's going to be there? People who love God. Guess who's not going to be there? Everybody else. Who could care less? They just kind of... I just came to church. I didn't, I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to be a part of what you're doing. I just, I know I'm supposed to be here on at least one day out of the year. So I just wanted to show up and kind of hang out for a few minutes and then go home. I don't want you pressuring me to do anything for Jesus Christ. I just want to kind of be a part of this place. You know, Pastor Paul's here and there's some Mzungus here. And I want to be able to tell people that I, I belong to this nice building and this nice property and this nice place. I don't really want to do anything. I don't care about God. I just, just, you know, it helps my social status to be here. And that's not what we're interested in. We want people who love God, who, who understand Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. And he's worth serving. He's worth giving your life for and your time for. What, what is an hour and a half on Friday? Or a couple of hours on, on one Saturday out of the month. And people, people can't do that for Jesus. And so when you go in that direction, when you create this contemporary garbage, that's what you produce. I t- I'm supposed to be standing at my table and greeting people. They're leaving. <laughs> They're not even coming over the table to talk to us. So I took my jacket off and went over it. I was like, I told my wife, you just stay here. If somebody comes and talks, say hello. And I went over and started helping load boxes. Because they didn't build a church of people with integrity and work ethic and dedication to Jesus Christ. 
They built an entertainment system, and when people came and got there, and when 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 you if people go to a movie theater and the movie the, and the movie's over, what if the movie theater said we need everybody to stay and help clean? <laughs> no, I came to watch a movie. I didn't I didn't come to clean nothing. <laughs> You're gonna clean it when I leave. Well, that's what those churches create. You you gave them the entertainment. They came. They enjoyed it. Oh, what a wonderful talk. Oh, look at the guy in his skinny jeans. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, it's over. See you later. I'm going to get lunch. I don't care what you're doing after that. I don't care about a part of me going to Mexico. I'm not going to Mexico. They have drug cartels in Mexico. (laughs) Send the boxes. Leave me alone. And so that's what it creates. And it's a shameful thing. We want people that love the Lord and have work ethic and want to serve Jesus Christ. And if that's your interest, you'll do well here. If that's not your interest, you're not going to like it here. I don't even know why you'd come. We have people in our home church. You know, we have a lot of people in our home church who serve God. And then we have people who come and they only come because they like Brother James. He's a great speaker. He's funny. He's, you know. But then when he starts touching on subjects like Christmas and Easter and street preaching, they're like... Maybe we should go somewhere else and we could just listen to them on the radio. <laughs> and they do. They leave. Or they come and, they, and they'll, they'll go in his office and say, I need you to stop preaching on those things. Really? Well, since you asked, we will, we, will, we will cut all that out. We will never mention it again. Just for you. No. <laughs> no. Now I'm going to preach it twice as much because you came in here and thought you could tell me what to preach in the pulpit from the word of God. And so they get uncomfortable and they get mad and they leave and they talk about how they were mistreated. You were not mistreated. Why did you come here? Okay. If I went to that same church in Texas and I know their mentality and I go there and I try to make the women dress like women and the men dress like men, which they did not do in that church. And I try to have them sing hymn music, which they do not do in that church. And I tell them, you need to open a King James Bible. How's that church going to look at me when when all that comes to fruition. They're going to think I'm crazy and they're going to help usher me out the door. (laughs) Well, it's no different if you come to a conservative King James Bible-believing church. Why would you come here and try and get us to listen to contemporary garbage, effeminate music? Why would you come here and try and encourage women to dress like men and men to dress like women and to do all these odd, intermingling, all-inclusive, ungodly Garbage. It doesn't fit. Why come here if you're not interested in what we are doing? Go somewhere else. There are plenty of churches who will never ask you to go out street preaching. They, will, they won't ask you for anything. If you just throw a few shillings in, 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 in the bucket, they're happy. They're, they're glad you're there. They don't care what you do. You can do whatever you want. You can live any way you want. You can be the devil incarnate. And as long as you're going to throw a few shillings in the, in the offering plate... You're welcome. Not here. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a big problem across the world, especially in America. This is why America is failing because churches are failing. And England is failing because churches are dead. They are beyond failing. They are dead. And... And every country has this cycle, and that's the direction they go, and that's the way they go, because 
They don't trust God. They don't trust the word of God. They don't create godly standards. They'd rather just give themselves over to whatever reprobate mind is available in that day. And we want to do what we can to protect you from that. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.